This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You know, we just learned a lot about uh, how the breakups impact us. Maybe it's some of those breakups that are keeping people from wanting to move forward and date anyway. I have a lot of clients that come and talk to me and they're like, oh, is my is my millennial or my young adult ever going to get married? And, you know, as somebody that looks over, you know, a desk every day from a young millennial, the answer to that is obviously no. No, they're not. It's never going to happen. At least this one's not. At least this one's not. Even if you make all the ice cream in the world, Ben, it still may not happen. But a lot of people are like, that's fine. That's fine. I don't want my kid married yet. You know? Interesting. Uh, we've had we've had some great guests on recently um, that, of course, you, you don't need to push your kid to get married. But there will be a point where you'll be thinking, seriously, are you ever going to get married? When is this going to happen? So we wanted today to – I wanted to spend a little bit of time in the coach's corner talking about marriage. Mowage. And it, when you think about it, it's not always – you know, it's it's not always that we we just are choosing not to get married. I mean there are a lot of reasons why people aren't dating, aren't getting married. In fact, next hour we'll be we'll be talking to a, an expert um, who works and coaches with coaches singles and, and does everything she can to help them um, create a healthier and and I think happier uh, happier life. But w- there's there's certain things that have to be there. And and if somebody wants to get married, there's four needs I teach that have to be. In play, you you, you got to have you got to want four things while you're dating to create, I think, some movement. The first one is you got to be you got to want to be in the game. Um, and we had uh, a great expert on Brian Willoughby here from Brigham Young University that talked about uh, a few uh, a week ago or so about the fact that so many people are missing the market. They're not even in the dating game. They're just not in it. They may have taken themselves out while they're finishing a program, you know, they're finishing their degree. Many people decide that they're not even going to date seriously until they are older, until they have finished school, for example. Or some will say, I'm not going to date seriously till I'm through my first year of law school or until I'm done with medical school or until I've, you know, until I finish this program or this certificate or I'm back from an internship. And the minute you set that that goal in your head that you're not going to do something until then you may be removing yourself from the game in the end you've got to you've got to be available when people are available and i think a lot of us uh and especially and we're doing them for good reasons there's a lot of uh, kids that go on lds missions and they remove themselves for 2 years to go on an lds mission and they're not in the dating game for 2 years now many people would say well i know but that's fine but you'll come back and there's other people to date well, except um, a lot of times you date who you know and you date your the people from your cohort, the people from your age group. And when you pull yourself out for an extended period of time from an, an age group and a, and a group of people that you know, you actually might be shrinking or the, the size of the market around you might be shrinking as you're out of the game. 
and you just assume you can inject yourself back into that market and all of a sudden find your partner. But that may not always be the case. Like uh, like Brian Willoughby was teaching us, the ideal age for the happiest marriages, believe it or not, are ages 22 to 25. We've talked about other research on the show that said if you got married at 29, you'll you'll be the ha- you'll have a good marriage. But the research shows what you'll have is the least likely marriage to divorce. That doesn't necessarily equate to the happiest marriage. Happiest marriages with the least likely chance of divorcing happen between 22 and 25. And again, if you're planning on if you're 27 by the time you're deciding to get married, you may be, you know, out of the market, out of the game. So there's something going on obviously because people are choosing to get married older. Another reason is simply because they 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 don't necessarily have a pro-marriage role model. For example, uh, their parents are sitting there saying, "Do not get married young. Don't get married young. Get just wait. Wait." Get your degree. Once you've got your degree, so even the parents are pushing, wait to get the degree. But then parents, if you're pushing your children to wait, then you shouldn't be surprised when they do. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You can't really have it both ways. Yeah, but you didn't know this guy, Matt. This guy was such a loser. You did not know this guy. So if you want to promote marriage in your life with your kids and your young adults, then you've got to be a pro-marriage parent. That might also mean you've got to like being married yourself. If your kids see that you hate marriage, that might be another reason why these millennials are saying, I don't know if I want to go there. My mom hates it. My dad can't stand it. If you don't make marriage look appealing, then why would we expect people to do it? So one of the benefits of being a millennial today is you, you've you seen how your parents have handled their lives. So... That may be one reason you're choosing not to be in the game is you never had a pro-marriage role model. You never had somebody that saw the benefit or the need or the love of it. Another reason um, that uh, we've talked about recently on the show, too, is that you got to want it. And there's a big uh, issue with attachment that they're finding out that your ability to attach to another human being is probably one of the most important skills or tools you've got in your life. Do you feel like, just as you're a listener today, do you feel like you have a really strong ability to connect in and attach in a healthy way to another person? Do you feel like you're healthy about it, or do you feel like you're more desperate for them, needy for them? According to the research, uh, some of the latest research that uh, Dr. Vanita Mehta shared with us a while ago is you've got um, about... uh, since in the last 20 years, since about 1988, that the that people have become more unhealthily um, attached. So 60% of the people today have an unhealthy ability to attach. They don't attach well, which was weird because 20 years ago, it was about 50% had an attachment issue. Only 50% had an attachment issue. Today, 60% have an attachment issue, which means only 40% of the people in your dating pool have the ability to, in, to attach in a healthy way. That might be another reason why people are prolonging marriage. So, And we talked about it, the fact if you, if you don't have a strong attachment, then some tendencies you'll have. One thing is to just simply be you know, um, basically not 
into wanting to get married. You actually are not pro-marriage. You, you, you don't want to marry, A, but you actually don't see a need for it. So you become kind of an anti-marriage evangelist. And if you start becoming somebody that doesn't need marriage, then that will pretty much ensure you're not going to find somebody that's going to want you. Another thing we do is we get preoccupied. If I am not into healthy attachment, then I might get more preoccupied with my life, my business, my work, my degrees. And I think so some of these kids that are just too busy and they're prolonging their their idea of getting married, they just – it's not that they don't see a need for it. They want to get married. It's just going to happen after they're done with school. So imagine that you're dating somebody like that. That's a hard date. Somebody that doesn't is not anxiously wanting to be with you. Um, and so we'll just wait three more years. Then we cohabitate, and that creates other issues uh, as far as marriage stability. Uh, couples that do cohabitate before aren't happier. They are less likely to get married. They're less likely to to actually make the relationship work. So um, interesting, just interesting stats from the researchers. Um, the other thing that people tend to do if they're not necessarily uh, able to attach in a healthy way, they tend to fear relationships. And when they fear them, they're not so excited to get into them. And then the last simple rule is some people uh, just don't know how to date. They don't know how to do it. And they don't have the skills. They don't have the ability. They've never taken a class. They've never read a book. And they've never been good at it by just dating on their own. And it creates problems. So you got to want it. You got to be in the game. You got to have role models that are pro marriage, and you got to know how to do it. And if you don't have those things, then it's going to, you're probably going to slow down your path. So, parents, you know, don't just sit there and complain. Sit down and talk to your kids. Is it one of those issues? Are they just not in the game? They're not around people to date. Where do you find a date today if you don't go to a bar? If you're somebody that's not going to go to a bar and drink, where do you find the date? At work? Well, I'm working. And they dissuade us from dating at work. Okay? So you can't find them necessarily at work. And if you're done with school or if you're not going to school, it's hard to find a date. And are you a great role model, parents? Have you taught your child, you know, the importance of relationships, the importance of marriage, that they're not disposable, that we don't just throw them away? Anyway, just a little uh, coach's corner for you. Instead of worrying about your child eventually getting married, why don't you just talk to them? Find out what's going on in their life. And uh, be their coach. Be their guide on the side. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. So do you have kids and uh, technology? All of a sudden, your kids come in. You know, they used to say, hi, Dad. Hi, Mom. Can I have something to eat? Now they just get right to their tech. They sit on the couch. They uh, they veg a little bit. They get into their their little zone, their world. And um, what we uh, what we try to do is 
we try to stay ahead of the tech. You don't necessarily want to discourage the tech, right? Because this isn't going away. But how are you supposed to raise a family? How are you supposed to raise, you know, kids when their heads are always on a phone? We just bought this brand new car, and this car is so tech heavy, it's crazy. Like, literally, we almost have to insure the car for more uh, simply because once the tech goes out on the car, we're in trouble. Like, nothing will work. It has a main screen, I don't know, about a 10-inch screen. Maybe it's not that big. I don't know, about a large iPad, whatever size that is, um, that is the is the screen that controls everything in my car. But it can also – you can pick up Wi-Fi. You can do all of these different things. So it's gotten to the point that our car not only has a like a television in it, but it has Wi-Fi connectivity. It has everything you could ever imagine. It's taking over, folks. It's going to kill us, or is it? Well, our next guest, Janelle Burley Hoffman, is is uh, is going to be coming on, and she's going to help us understand how to integrate tech into our everyday lives. You know, kids are using it, toddlers are using it, whether it's iPads or iPods. You know, the crazy kicker is that uh, these gadgets sometimes can be run uh, more efficiently by by the kids than even their parents. So this saturation of technology in our everyday life, it may have some of us worried, right? Is our family tech healthy? What kind of boundaries ought to be set to create a healthier family and a balance between family and modern technology? Well, Janelle Burley Hoffman is the author of the article that uh, we, we found on Huffington Post, 10 Traits of Tech Healthy Families. She joins us now from Massachusetts to talk about her article. Ms. Hoffman, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. This, I mean, to me, I have six kids, and this is huge, this idea of technology kind of taking over my family. Talk to us about, uh, first of all, you know, how did, how did you get started in this focus of yours on technology and family? Sure. So just like you, um, it was on my mind as a mother of five and parenting in the digital space. And also my work with youth and community and parenting regionally here in Massachusetts, I was seeing how much it was on the minds of young people and their families. And so when my oldest son, who is now 16, was 13, I, he wanted his first smartphone, of course. And I wanted to make sure that when I gave him the technology, I was doing it thoughtfully and mindfully. I wasn't just automatically handing it over. Right. And so I wrote him an 18th contract outlining my <laughs> expectations um, and agreements of how we would use the technology and really how I thought he could use it in a very specific way, like in how I wanted him to turn it off at certain times in the night. And I still wanted him, you know, I wanted to remind him that what he said over the device, he had to be willing to say to someone's face, you know, because it's so easy to be brave. Right. And then, of course, there were some points in there that, was a reflection on how I wanted the technology to not take away his adolescence or replace some of those human experiences that are important around growing up. And so from there, um, I shared the contract, obviously, uh, with my husband and my son. And then I shared it on my blog, both on my website and on the Huffington Post, and it, it went viral. And this was back in 2012. And, and from there, the work really shifted from um, my family and a regional perspective to this big international conversation, bringing the book I Rules to life, and 
talking to schools and to teachers and parents and students themselves all over the world about this very conversation of how do we integrate technology in a way that's exciting and new and can enhance our lives, but how do we address some of the challenges and changes um, that happen for us in the everyday around it? Mm, That is a super proactive as a parent, but I mean, really, you took on the issue that many of us are are fighting and, and trying to balance every day. It's also like you you didn't just try to brush it aside and pretend like it's not an issue, but you 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 wanted to get some control over it. And I guess I guess one of the first keys is to not necessarily reject technology, but to kind of to to manage it, to lead it. Absolutely, I think as the adults. Um, we need to be first reflecting on our own use. You know, what, what, in what ways are we using the technology? Is it balanced in our lives? Is, are we using it in a way that feels good to us, or do we already feel pulled by it? What's our level of digital literacy or digital fluency around the devices? Are we resisting it? Are we afraid of it? You know, how are we thinking about the technology before we automatically just hand it to a child and expect them, while they can be really tech-savvy as part of the digital generation, but we still have the wisdom of the teachings that are important and integrating that process to the technology. You know, just because we can hand over all the technology in the world to a child doesn't mean that we should all at once, that we should be introducing it to them a little at a time so that they, we can set them up for that level of success with the technology. As you know, um, parenting in, in a busy, full house, in modern-day parenting, none of us want to introduce something that's going to add more struggle. Right, right. We right. want to address some of these issues. Like this, It's already challenging enough <laughs> it's to so run a true. family. It's so, so true. Is so there... we all go out and buy these devices that, that can, can add more stress. But I think if we take that step back and say, how do we want it? Right? Yes, the technology is here, but how do we want it in our lives? And that you might answer that question different than I might or someone right. else, but it's really important that we reflect on it. Yeah, and, and you use our brains, right? And th- we're here for a purpose. We ha- we're having a family for a purpose, and that purpose isn't to just ignore each other and to be controlled by our devices. I also love that you, you focus it on a family as well, like because you know, and families come in every shape and size. One of the powerful things, though, is it, it, it's a system, right? This is a family is a is a is a structure and an organization, and it has rules and it has boundaries. And um, when you talk about your uh, article, ten traits of tech healthy families, give us some ideas that come from that uh, about what actually what what would be essential or important to make sure we're looking at to create a tech healthy family. This is the reason I use the term tech healthy is because I want us to think about it like we would other areas of health and wellness, whether it's physical health or mental health or emotional health, social health. I want to start introducing technology in that same way, right? So we might tell our children that they can't, they can have a cookie for dessert, but they can't have a cookie for every single meal and never eat a vegetable, right? So we want to look at it from a place of, of balance that we can have some of it and we can take our time with it. So, so in the article, I think one of the most foundational pieces of, of my work is that it's not up to me to tell people what they should be doing with the technology, but instead offering them the opportunity to reflect on what they want from the technology. Mm. And where we begin with that is thinking about what our values are as a family, what our principles and cornerstones 
that are guiding us in other areas of our lives, in the other ways and methods we're teaching our kids, and then applying that to the screen. That's such a great... I just was thinking as you were saying that, like we have a daughter that's married, has a be- we have a beautiful grandbaby, that, and they come over and they'll walk in the house. They're coming to visit, and there's this lull between when they arrive and when people put their technology away. And there's this awkward silence, and, and I'm sitting there thinking, we need to sit down with our kids and talk about these things. Like what do we want people to feel when they come over? When they walk in, and I mean, all that is is a conversation, right? Like, like you're saying, it's just a question we need to answer. Exactly, and young people can be part of that conversation. Too, right. Of, you know, what does this look like, and what message does this send about what's important, and and being present. And it's not the call to action is not for us to be perfect, or not that we'd never make a mistake, or you know that we aren't always learning. I think that's the one great thing about parenting is that we're learning every single right. day about ourselves, about our children, about the way that they interact in all different ways, but with the technology. So really making this about about reflection, that we have this opportunity because the technology is new for all of us, right? There's nobody ahead of us saying, when did my mom allow me to go on Instagram? Or when is the right, you know, when did I get my first smartphone? That we're really trailblazing this as right. a generation of parents right now. So we need each other. We need these conversations. But also we need to be reflecting in our, in our own lives and families. So that, that, that takes a little bit of work. You know, when I teach a class or um, give a talk, people will say, oh, I thought you were going to give me three simple steps that would guarantee success and we would live happily ever after. And we all know that's, number one, not how life or parenting works. So, of course, the technology, especially because it's so new, is not going to be every different in any way from that. We're going to have to be reevaluating and, and reassessing. And I think that's why contracting and coming up with these agreements and having a lot of communication around this space is critical because our kids grow and change, the technology shifts and changes, but what can stay the same and what's reflected in the 10 tech healthy habits of families is that the values stay the same even as the external world shifts. Yeah. No, I love that. I love that. And and just the mere fact that we've had a discussion around our values and principles, that's a killer foundation. Let's take a break. We'll come back. We'll have more with Janelle Burley Hoffman. You, you can go to her website, JanelleBurleyHoffman.com. And uh, while you're there, you can also be looking for her book, uh, I Rules, What Every Tech Healthy Family Needs to Know About Selfies, Sexting, Gaming, and Growing Up. When we come back, we'll continue uh, talking about the different dialogues or discussions we need to hold as a family um, and, and kind of just try to understand and create some, some, some structure around uh, technology in our home. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Everybody, a little uh, Mr. Roboto from Styx. Mm. Some cool music right there. See, I remember back in the day when listening to music like that would rot your brain. 
Nope, now it's 12 hours of screen time. That's going to rot your brain. So who better to help us than uh, Janelle Burley Hoffman, who is the author of the book I Rules, What Every Tech Healthy Family Needs to Know About Selfies, Sexting, Gaming, and Growing Up. She also wrote an article called 10 Traits of Tech Healthy Families, and she's walking us through the conversations we need to have with our kids when it comes to technology. Welcome back, Janelle Burley Hoffman. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. This is such, a, I think, an essential uh, uh, foundation we need around our technology. And what I love, too, is how you set it up really as there's some dialogues, there's discussions we need to have with our kids. And one of them is you said uh, last, last before the break about the fact that we need to kind of set up our values and our principles. We need to kind of shore those up for what we want to be as a family. And then you also talk about the fact that we need families um, need that did they need to I guess decide if they're going to be digitally literate. What do you mean by that? Sure. So, so this is a great opportunity for for parents to reflect on how comfortable they are around the technology. And to parent in the digital space, it doesn't mean that we need to know how to code or that we need to be tech experts ourselves. But we want to have a fluency in it, right? We want to have an understanding not just in our own use, but also in our individual child's use. So if we think about our children in different ways, they have different behaviors. They probably have different appetites, right? Some of them might eat a lot. Some of them might eat like birds. Well, the way they're going to interact with the technology is going to be different, too. They're going to have different tech tendencies. And we want to know that about our child. Hmm. And we want to parent and curate the experience for them so that they, again, can, we can come back to this word health, so that they interact in a healthy way. So, so what does that mean and what does that look like? Well, just like we would ask our children, you know, who's going to hang out and be playing down at the soccer field? Who will you be with? Um, what time will you be home? You know, if we think of, of a middle schooler in that regard. And, you know, do you need a ride? How will you contact me? We have all of these conversations away from the screen. And we want to be having that same kind of knowledge and interaction with our kids on the screen, hmm. right? So who do you text with? Where are you online? What social networks? What games are you playing? Asking questions when in doubt as parents get curious. Why do you like it? How will you use it? Why does it feel important for you to have it? So again, these are all questions we can ask before allowing a certain social network or allowing a device during or after we've already said yes, it's never too late to come back and reassess some of the things we've said yes to and ask the question of the family, right? What's working? What's going really well? And what is it? Right. And, and this is something you, you can't afford to just leave it to your child. I mean, you want to be informed, like you say. You, you want to be up to date. Absolutely. And kids feel really safe and really happy and positive when they have boundaries, when they know what the expectations are. Just like all of us in our own, in the workplace or, you know, in our, in our relationships, we want to know, you know, where are the boundaries here? What is the expectation? What's the, again, where, where am I supposed to be? What's okay? Who Mm. can I go for if I've made a mistake or I need some help? You know, asking who are my askable adults? Because no child should have to figure out the internet and all of the things that go on with the internet on their own. Right. They need people, they need guidance, they need models, and it doesn't necessarily have to be people who are absolutely experts on the technology, but they they need, we can't just hand over the technology and hope for the best. Yeah. I, I use the analogy often, if we wanted to teach our child to cook a meal, 
we're going to think of this as a process, right? right? We're going to say, okay, perhaps, you know, when they're a young child, preschool age, they'll stand with us in the kitchen. We'll read the recipe for them. They might get to mix in the bowl. Then when they get a little bit older, we might let them chop some of the vegetables to go into the soup so they get to use the knife after we've taught them. And then as they get older, maybe they can bake a cake on their own with the ultimate goal being that someday they can feed themselves, hmm. right? That, mm-hmm. that we've taught them enough. And we would never just say, here's the ingredients, here's the recipe, here's some utensils, and be careful, sometimes the stove gets hot. Yeah. That you, wouldn't be enough. No, you, you need more, don't you? You make them, you call them eye rules. So through these discussions and even just through your learnings or even mistakes that happen, we could also come up with some eye rules. Explain what an eye rule is. Sure. So an eye rule is an agreement or a, a boundary around the technology. And again, these limits and boundaries and expectations for our kids help them know what, what we value and where the limits are. And just so some examples of different eye rules can be a, a specific time we want our children to turn the device off at night right. or a specific time for usage. A lot of families are, you know, one of the big questions I hear right now is a lot of screen time is for homework and it's hard to know, you know, how much is too much and what is normal and all of this. And, and so allowing time for just some freedom for the kids to, whether it's, you know, to text with friends or to use social networks to go on the games. And then there's time to get down to business where they're using it for schoolwork and really having a different a conversation around our kids to help them differentiate is important. Mm. Also outlining, you know, eye rules can include things in terms of behaviors, right? So that social emotional health, that the kind of content we want them viewing, the types of things they want to share, also to protect their personal information. Kids don't naturally know, you know, a little bit they're taught in school now, but to protect their passwords, that no one should ever ask for their name and birth date or any banking or credit card information, that if any of those things come up through a gaming or the app store, that, that they need to come to a parent or another caregiver or babysitter because those things are private and personal information. You know, just teaching them these foundational usage tips is really important as as they go forward. It's part of the things that our kids need to learn in modern society. Yeah, we we make a big deal um, about that. They're they're probably going to end up seeing something on the internet that they they don't feel they should be looking at, and what they should do yeah. when they come across something like that. Instead of just hiding it, going quiet, and pretending like they didn't see it. We always just tell them, come tell us. We'll help you turn it off. We'll help you get off the page. And but because otherwise there's this shame that could be associated with some things that are on there or just naive, you know, exploration that could end up harming. Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up because, again, this is a critical teaching. And when you say to a child, uh, you may stumble across something that you, you know, I, I'll ask this question when I'm in schools and, and doing programming to students, how many of you, and this could be age eight all the way through co- a college lecture, how many of you have seen something online you wish you didn't see? Hmm. And 100% of the time, 100% of the students put their hands up. Yeah. And this doesn't necessarily mean that it's something explicit or particularly violent or something in a lot of cases that parental controls might block. It might just be something that they didn't understand they weren't sure if it was true, something that felt confusing. Right. So, so it's important that we have these things in place so our children know, I'm here for you. I can handle it. 
right? That's a really powerful sentiment. And if we can't be that person as their parents, that we're directing them to somebody that can. Yeah, man, that's a, what do you call them? Uh, What do you call the person that they can go to? The askable adult. That's such a great term, isn't it? The askable adult. And um, I mean, I guess ideally we should always as a parent try to be the askable adult, right? Um, Yes. That's, that's the idealistic point of view. Well, the funny thing is, though, every teenager also knows there's some things we just don't ask mom and dad, except <laughs> except even that would be great if you could make yourself you know, available in such a way that it's askable. I, I love another part of your, um, your 10 tech family traits um, is the fact that we're having fun with technology. The benefit of technology, there's so much that you can do with it now, and our family will just gather together and... and um, like on Apple TV, and, and we can just shoot up really funny videos that we all watch. And for an hour, we can all throw up our favorite videos and share them as a family. Absolutely. I think we cannot underestimate how fun and how engaging the technology really is and how convenient and how it does have a lot of positive contributions to, to family life when we use it that way. I, right. I can speak from my own experience. I, you know, At this time, I have a 16-year-old son, a 13-year-old son, an 11-year-old daughter, a 10-year-old daughter and an 8-year-old daughter. And while they don't all have their own personal devices, my teenage sons do. And I have to say that the technology has deepened our relationships because we we can share articles. We can share funny videos with each other. Um, I get a sense of what their interests are mm-hmm. and what they're reading, what they're watching. And at another time, I don't think my 16-year-old son would have cut out 10 newspaper clippings and said, hey, mom, check these out. (laughs) They're really funny, you know? But now he can share that kind of content with me. So it's insight and talking points and conversation we can engage in. Once it's been shared on the screen, now it becomes a place place we can build a bridge and something we have in common to reference as, as we go through the teenage years. Or... Even silly things like the face swap app, you know, so yeah. you can put your face on someone else's face, which all of my kids are in love with this app. And there's this silliness about it. So really finding ways. I mean, I know families that build Lego programming together or they're curious and they have access to information like never before so they can explore and get answers to questions together. So there's absolutely unlimited ways that we can deepen and enhance the relationship as a family through the technology. Mm. It really, it, it, again, it's, it's, our, it's our tool. It doesn't have to be our master. We have a, a couple more minutes. What would you say, uh, Janelle, as we're wrapping up, what would you say, you know, is, is the one thing that I, I always call it the one thing that just might create the make the biggest difference for us, but the one thing that immediately something we could all start doing that would that would create a change, a positive change in our use of technology. Sure. sure. So I call this the, the slow tech philosophy. So slow tech doesn't mean no tech. It doesn't mean a slow connection to the technology, but it's thinking about how you want it in life. So maybe you can make a small change saying everybody, including the adults, are gonna put their devices away before bed. Or we're all going to sit down to a meal device free. We're going to spend some time having conversation around the technology. So it doesn't mean that we need to get rid of it for a week, or it doesn't, but there's pockets where we can be fully present um, with our family, with our partners, with our friends and extended family, where we bring back some of the presence and some of the humanity to the space around the digital world. And that doesn't mean we don't have a deep love for the technology, but it means we have a deep respect for those relationships away from the screens as well. Huh. Wow. That's cool. I love that. I mean, that's pretty basic, isn't it? 
It's just <laughs> it basic. <is. laughs> that's I guess all of this is basic, and yet uh, it's so hard for us to do and, and to to make sure that the tech doesn't run us over. Well, we appreciate you. Janelle Burley Hoffman. Uh, great. Great insight, really. And people can find out more about what you're doing by just going to your website, JanelleBurleyHoffman.com, or looking you up on Huffington Post as well. Is that right, Janelle? Absolutely. Awesome. Well, we appreciate you. Great work. And uh, everybody go also check out the book, iRules, What Every Tech Healthy Family Needs to Know About Selfies, Sexting, Gaming, and Growing Up by Janelle Burley Hoffman. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, wrap up this second hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us, friends. We're helping you find the good in the world. And by golly, it might even be on your own device with your family. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's just technology. But... I'm telling you, I have a feeling we are getting lulled to sleep and we are sleeping through our own lives. The minute you have a free second, do you reach for your cell phone? Do you have to go check Facebook to see what your million friends are doing or have done? What is it doing to us? It's killing us. And again, it's just tech. I get it. It's just technology. However, This is still your life. And if you're going to spend the rest of your life just caught up in technology, what lesson are we sending our children? So before we sit there and try to fix our children's use of technology, make sure you take a really strong inventory of yourself. Are you addicted? If you lost your phone, would your life completely fall apart? Well, yeah. Who would I? Who would I like? Well, I don't know. But that's pretty pitiful because if you lost your phone, you're still you, right? Well, yeah, but I don't know my friends' names or their numbers. Well, that's weird. Maybe they're not your real friends then. Come on. Come on. Hey, uh, you know, tech is being used everywhere. If you, I don't know if you heard this story about uh, cops. Um North, Northeast Ohio police are hoping to figure out who left a bag of methamphetamine in a hotel, I guess. And they, they, they feel horrible. The police department feels horrible for the owner's loss and wants to help. The tongue-in-cheek message was posted Tuesday to the Macedonia Police Facebook page and asked the owners of the drugs to call or stop by to claim them so officers can, in their words, make your day. It's a trap! A photograph shows a baggie containing what detectives say is about a gram of high-grade crystal methamphetamine worth as much as 160 bucks. The detective at the department, about 20 miles southeast of Cleveland, says there were numerous empty bags in the hotel trash can. Police haven't identified who rented the room using a, uh, a gift card. Um, so if you're out there and you've lost $160 worth of high-grade crystal meth, about a gram's worth, give them a call. Or give us a call. No, don't give us a call. (laughs) No, 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 no. Don't give us a call. Ben, give the Macedonia Police Department a call. They're worried. They're worried about you. See, you can use tech to help people who have lost things. 
It's that simple. By the way, I used tech to find my my iPad once when I dropped it off my car, actually. I left it on my hood of my car. I drove away. I, I've only heard of, like, women doing that with their purses. Okay. Well, you need to get out more. Ben, because I'm not a woman and it wasn't in a purse. It was on my roof of my car and I drove away. And I called my son and I'm like, have you seen my iPad? And he's like, no. And I said, it's missing. I lost it. And I was terrified. And he's like, well, Dad, have you looked it up? Have you have you tried to the find my iPhone app and the find my iPad app? And I'm like, no, what are you talking about? And about a minute later, he had found my iPad. He said, Dad, I found your iPad. It's traveling south on I-15. <gasps> what? Anyway, we tech, we contacted the iPad, told him to call this number. We know where you are. And within about an hour, hour and a half, we had our iPad back. Pretty cool. Tech is good. Tech making me happy. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back next hour. One more hour, more fun, more tools to help you live longer and stronger. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Let me give you some principles of life if you want to be happy, okay? Four principles that I uh, have found. They're not new, they're, and it's not grit, uh, but it might lead to grit. Uh, four lessons of happy people. If you want to be happy and you – because there's a lot we can teach our kids, right? And we're killing ourselves trying to give them every opportunity in the world. But if I, if I could just only teach my children four things, these are the four things that, boy, I think in the end are worth all the money in the world. First and foremost, if I could teach my kids to just be self-aware, meaning they could understand how they influence – others, if they could see their strengths, if they understood their weaknesses, if they really were into understanding who they are, if they understood their feelings, had their their own insights into who they are, their contributions in life, their, their greatest uh, strengths, their greatest weaknesses, if I could teach self-awareness, boy, then I would be ahead of the game. If I had a child that understood what he did well, what he doesn't do so well, and hopefully help that child also learn to to take that self-awareness and develop it into, you know, strength and go be learned and tutored and educated on those things. How cool would that be? Are your children self-aware? Do they understand the impact they have on their friends? Do they understand what their strengths are really? Or do they just kind of shy away from them and don't want to go there? Do they know if, if they're good socially? Do they know if they're good academically? Do they know what, what they're good at academically? Do they know what, they come, what comes natural to them? Are they numbers people? Do they get the numbers? Do they, are they, do they love language? Self-awareness is a powerful, powerful trait. And so if we could teach self-awareness, that helps us understand us. One way to do this is to work with your kids and ask them questions about themselves. Like, what foods do you really like? Which foods do you notice really 
that uh, that don't don't suit you that that aren't good for you that you eat and when you eat them have you noticed what you feel after you eat them what uh, what things impact your moods these are great topics of conversation things that we could be discussing with our kids try to identify from what they're saying about themselves what do they feel like they do the best what do they feel when they're out playing on a team what insecurities do they have where do they feel most secure? Where do they feel most at home? How do they impact others? Just conversations. And by the way, allowing a child to feel what they're feeling. If they're sad, don't try to get them to stop feeling sad. Have them talk about their sadness. Figure out where it came from. How did they get to that feeling? Anyway, self-aware is one of the great lessons I think we should all be teaching. Another is that we, we want to teach our kids to learn to care. How many times have you asked your kid, what do you want for dinner? Like, I don't care. Well, I know you don't, but I need you to kind of care. <laughs> what do you want to do when you grow up? I don't know. I don't care. At some point, caring is, is more than just being nice, right? At some point, learning to care is, is, is something bigger than that. Caring is also – it's the great motivator, right? When somebody actually cares about something else or someone else, it actually drives emotion. To care means we know more – uh, about ourselves, but we also kind of know what drives us. It's a sense of responsibility. You know, having a dog. As a kid growing up, I cared for my dog, and even though I didn't care for cleaning up after him because I cared for the dog, I wanted the dog to have the best life. I I created more motivation. I was more in uh, a connection with this dog because of that. So, We've got to teach our kids to care about stuff, to care about their own gears, their own equipment, to care about their own thinking. Some things they, they can care about are their thoughts. We care about thoughts. When we care about our thoughts, we have thoughts that we believe in. We espouse thoughts. We fight for our th- thinking. We can care about things, you know, our toys, our bikes, our stuff. And we try to preserve the things we care about. We can also care about people. And when I care about people, we end up taking care of people. We listen to people. We serve people. So if we could teach our kids to be self-aware and to care, holy cow, then we're on to something. We could also teach them to dare, right, to grow, to try to be stronger, to reach out, to risk. And then we could teach them to share, to serve others, to connect, to give of what they have to others. Self-aware. Care, share, dare. Basic skills, folks. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. So I wanted to take a little bit of time um, and talk about um, thinking and our thoughts. I have a lot of people that I work with uh, in my practice that are their brains are going a million miles an hour. And they have too many thoughts coming in. And it, with all this technology and with constant interruptions and the media and, you know, text messaging – Emails, they've got a lot of thoughts. And so I wanted to help you out today and help you figure out how to, to manage your thinking, your thoughts. Did you know um, some research suggests we have anywhere from twenty to 70,000 thoughts a day, right? Because – and by the way, remember, some of the thoughts are subconscious and some are conscious. Some of you actually think, oh, I like flowers. I'm having that thought right now about flowers. But some thoughts you don't even think about. Ninety percent of thought you don't even think about. How much and how much of this has to do with social media 
TV watching, reading, yeah. reading. Interesting, right? And then you might put something into your head just because you saw it on social media and your your brain at one level is still processing it. And then you might actually bring it into the the cognitive state where you now conscious state where you share it with another. So these thoughts get in our head and I found that there's uh, there's four different kinds of thoughts that I bring up. I mean I'm sure if I talk to a neuropsychiatrist, we'd find seven. But I'm not a neuropsychiatrist. But I, I have some some ideas for how you can get the thoughts out of you. One of the keys, by the way, to thinking is thoughts are they stay in your head because of energy, right? It takes energy to keep a thought, to dwell on a thought, to process a thought, to access a thought. So if you're having seventy thousand thoughts a day, you are probably exhausted. So here's some ways to get these thoughts out of your head. And to do it effectively. So some of the thoughts we have in life are just to organize us, right? Uh, The thought about scheduling, your appointment. They're the thoughts that we have in our life to keep us healthy, to make sure we don't get killed. Uh, Appointments we need to go to, places we need to go. And I know a lot of people that don't, they just think they're going to wing that. So what I have found is if you want to be able to create some peace of mind, you could immediately take all of those thoughts that are important, like don't forget to pick up your kids. Don't forget to unplug the iron. All of these things that are really critical, you can now use your technology to help you schedule because you can now just press a button and say, Siri, set a reminder for me to unplug the iron at 8.50 when I'm leaving. One of my wife's biggest pet peeves is the dozens of alarms that I set on my phone to remind me to do everything. No, but see, see, that's her pet peeve. But you know what? Don't do any of that and then see what her pet peeve is. <laughs> I'm going to get anything done. It's going to be this guy gets nothing done. So if you could just eliminate a lot of thoughts by getting them scheduled, getting them planned, getting them in there, you would actually use the energy to tell Siri or however you want to schedule it, get it on your appointment calendar. That energy would help eliminate the thought. So you don't need to keep thinking it over and over and over and over. Have you ever gotten up in the middle of the night and you had a thought, oh, my heavens, I forgot my report's due tomorrow. And then all of a sudden you had to work on it. That's your subconscious waking it up. So those thoughts are still alive in us. Another thought are the thoughts that connect us. How many times have you been sitting there, uh, you heard something at work, you heard a story that you really like, and it reminded you of somebody, and you thought, hey, I really ought to connect to this person. A lot of us then, we don't connect then. So the rule is the minute you think it, do it. So if I think, hey, I really ought to forward this or share this with my wife, share it. Because if I would take that immediate thought of my wife and immediately create an act to share that thought, then that thought will actually go away from me. But have you ever had a situation where you thought, I really ought to call so-and-so, maybe you were prompted to do it, and you never called so-and-so. So you thought about it the next morning, then you thought about it the next afternoon, and the next morning, and the next afternoon, and that occupies energy and time, and you still haven't done it. But if you're having 70,000 thoughts a day, and that – I mean that – you would assume that that means that so many of these thoughts are jumping at you all at one time. Yeah. How do you prioritize and say let's take care of this thought instead of this thought so that it will go away? Well, I might do it this – when you had the thought, right? Like if all of a sudden I'm, I'm meeting with somebody and they say, hey, so can you meet Friday? I wouldn't say let me go check on that. I would say right, let me check and I check right now because – I'm doing it now, so I don't – otherwise, I just delay it and I create 15 more thoughts of it. Do it now. If I have a prompting that I really ought to call so-and-so, I would either schedule a call to so-and-so or I might not call him. I might text him 
And I might just do it right there. Hey, I just met a guy that mentioned your company and I thought of you. How are you doing? I just check in. Now, that will create issues. I get that. But you're already going to have the issue if you thought or felt prompted to do something and you didn't do it. There is a reason we keep thinking to connect to people because it helps us stay alive and healthier. There are some other thoughts that block us, right? Those thoughts where we feel inferior, inadequate, we feel imperfect, we feel like a failure, some of those negative, ugly thoughts that we can't get out of our heads, or you know, the thought, I should apologize to so-and-so. One of the things that um, I might suggest you do is if it's an apology thought, just do the apology as fast as you can. Just get it done, band-aid off, rip it out. But if it's a if it's a typical thought that you're a failing parent, you're just not good enough, then um, I do this thing called data dumping where I suggest to my clients they take all of the energy of whatever they're hurting. Maybe it was a spouse that hurt their feelings or did something and write down what you were feeling. Write one line. Oh, he makes me so mad. I'm so sick of the guy. Then write a second line, but don't write it on a new line on the paper. Write it right on the top of the old line. So you now have written two lines on top, one line on top of the first line. And then write a third line about how that person makes you feel and write it on top of the first two lines you've written. So I've really only, I've written on top of the same line three times. And by doing that over and over and over and over until you get all the energy of the thought or the pain out of your head, you feel better. The pain goes away. And what's cool is it didn't take a form that you can read. So now you can say anything you want in written form and nobody can reread it, which I love. So it allows you a safe way to, uh, to get those thoughts out of you. Last but not least, there are some thoughts that inspire you. Anything you think you're going to, that has inspired you, I would blog it, journal it, write it down. I'd get a journal. I'd make a family history. I'd record it. I'd talk it out. But I'd document it. I have a bunch of different sites I go to. But I, if I have an inspiring thought, I write the quote down. I collect a million quotes. And they inspire me. And eventually when I die, my kids are going to have a billion quotes they're not mine. They're from everyone else. I'm constantly writing and learning. So just ways to get thoughts out of your head. Not that you need that, of course. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. McKenna Baus joins us uh, to, again, tweak our minds a bit. Hey. How are you? Doing well. Good to have you. Yeah, it's our, nice to Our top-notch producer and social media guru. Oh, well, I think you do me more credit than I deserve. No, excellent to have you. Uh, good to have you here. Talk about you were going to bring up this weird idea about languages dying. Yeah. So a lot of times when we think of dead languages, we think of kids Latin. sitting in class <laughs> studying Latin. I love – that was my favorite subject. You are one of the rare few. I'm fluent in a dead language. Well, there you go. And the thing is now more and more people um, are going to be able to say that as well. Right. Right now, um, there's predictions by scientists that 90% of all of the world's languages will have died out by the end of this century alone. 90%? 90%. What? Yeah. We're That's looking crazy. at mass extinction when it comes to language right Why? Now. Just because we're all moving toward a unified one or two or five languages? Yeah. So right now, there's approximately 7,000 languages wow. that we're aware of. On Earth, and about the top 100 are the only ones that are really widely spoken. And even within that, you have more and more that are becoming less and less used, mm. that are dying off as we sort of center around what are called these metropolitan languages, the big names, yeah. you know, that we all are familiar with, like English, English 
maybe Spanish, Spanish, Mandarin Chinese. Yeah. Although um, kids aren't even speaking English anymore, they're just sending emojis over their phones. Yeah, em- well, emojish is another language. Oh, definitely. So that is sad because you lose your language, mm-hmm. you lose your culture. Yeah. And so that's one of the big concerns that they have is that these languages are dying out faster than we can record them. Oh, no. And so you're losing the record of cultures entirely. You're losing all of the knowledge that those cultures had, a lot of it in terms of the plants and animals and their environment of where it's from. And so you lose medical information that we could use that has to be rediscovered. You're losing... um, I mean, just people's ability to communicate one with each other, to understand how these people thought. And the thing is, is you have a lot of people now who are on Earth and they are the only ones who can speak their mother language now. And so they can't even talk to anybody in the language that they grew up with. And I mean, I guess you could archive your language, but then it would still only be known by one professor at some yeah, it's, university. It's still the thing is though is that's just such an undertaking Sad. that a lot of these people they're out in more remote areas and they're harder to reach. Well, and is, I guess is that just because the markets demand that you speak one of these top ten languages? Um, that's you know part of it. One of the most interesting reasons that these are dying out is actually because of climate change. Really? Yeah. Um, a lot of these you know languages that are dying out are in these. Uh, ecologically threatened areas. And as seawater levels rise, they ha- these people have to move inland. They integrate more with mm. other communities. And all of a sudden, their language starts dying out. Mm. And so you have the environment... Changing. Changing our languages. And the culture. Yep. And taking away... The sad thing is taking away concepts that we don't even have. I, I speak Spanish and there's certain ways to talk about love and boyfriend and girlfriend that are so different in Spanish than they are in English. There's We have a word like love, mm-hmm. but you can love a burrito and you can love your wife it's not the and same we don't thing. differentiate. <laughs> you know, isn't it sad? We don't even know what we're losing. Yeah. And that's, you know, one of the things is it's going to be gone before we realize that unless we really start fighting to save these languages in any way that we can. But now we but we've got other we've got other words now that are so wonderful like square up. I don't even know if I know what that, that just means. means get ready to fight me. Oh, okay. My son says it to me every morning, square up dad. I'm like you want me to punch you. But he just it's just I don't know what it is. It's just being sounded hit. Irish. Square up, man. You want me to punch you? Do you want me to punch you in the face? Yeah, no. That's sad. Mm -hmm. So any way to fix this? Change global warming, apparently. Change global warming um, and really just encouraging communities um, to speak their indigenous languages as well. A lot of the effects that we're seeing now are also caused by, you know, decades and centuries before this of oppression of um, indigenous people trying to force assimilation of mm-hmm. different cultures. Uh, that's a big problem that is being faced with the um, First Nations people in Canada. Uh, 
for years, right. they had forced education things. They were these kids weren't allowed to speak their indigenous languages, and now nobody can. Yeah, and we are, and our intolerance to everybody has to speak English. But now we have refugees coming, immigrants coming in, and it might we might lose a lot if we don't allow them to at least maintain their languages. Yeah, we definitely we just need to do everything we can to celebrate linguistic diversity. Man, McKenna, great insight. Thanks for uh, that. I mean, really, folks, did you even think of that? powerful what we lose when we i mean seven thousand languages we could lose 90 percent of them crazy we'll take a break folks this is the matt townsend show helping you see the good in the world we'll be back Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, in business and in life, you must be smart to get ahead, right? As things shift and change quickly, you need to tap into your brain, learn how to think smartly in order to make sure that you maximize your opportunities. Well, who better to teach us about this than Brian Tracy? He's the chairman and CEO of Brian Tracy International, a company specializing in training and development. Over the years, he's trained and uh, and influenced millions and millions of lives. He has over 70 books and uh, has uh, spoken for 30-plus years. He happens to be one of the best-known trainers and educators in, I think, uh, I, I really truly believe, in corporate America and um, and in the world. We're honored to have him on the phone with us today. Brian Tracy has a new book that's out called Get Smart, How to Think and Act Like the Most Successful and Highest Paid People in Every Field. Brian Tracy, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Well, thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure to be with you. You bet. Great to have you. And talk about this new book you're releasing today, Get Smart. Well, you know, I, I had a poor, came from a poor background. I didn't graduate from high school, and I washed dishes and worked in construction. I was working on a farm when I was 23, Mm. and then I started to ask, why is it that some people are more successful than others? And it started me off on a lifelong quest, and what I found was that they just simply thought differently. It wasn't as if they started off with a different brain. Everybody's got the same brain going back 100,000 years, but people used it. Now, one of the great breakthroughs in the last few years in, in what they call neuroscience is neuroplasticity, which means that your brain is constantly changing based on the material you feed into it. Right. It's like your body changes if you eat different foods. Well, if you start to think differently and you start to think like successful people, you start to make different choices and get different results, which sort of reinforces that. It causes what are called new, new neural pathways. Is more and more you start to think the way other successful people think. Like we have in our society, we have serial entrepreneurs. We have people who start business after business after business. Richard Branson has started 82 successful businesses. Mm. How on earth can one person do that? Most of us can't make one business <laughs> successful. That's well, so what true. they've done is they've just created a series of neural patterns that enables them to recognize a business opportunity and then to find the right people who can help him to realize that business opportunity. So, so, so entrepreneurial thinking, which is one of the ten chapters, is just the way people think like this. They see business opportunities everywhere. Well, another way of thinking is, is long-term thinking, they, is they have long-term goals, and then they have short-term plans. And so every day, a minute of every day, they're working on their most important goals. And they accomplish ten times as much as other people. And these are all just ways of thinking. Isn't and that I, interesting? I summarize yeah, go a ahead. lifetime of stuff in my book. It's because there, we. it's not like a get-quick 
or get rich quick thing. It's but there are things that healthy, successful, high paid people are doing, and they're probably the things that the rest of us aren't doing. You know, like yes. like and, thinking and long term. Yes, exactly. Well, like in business, for example, uh, they've spent millions of dollars to determine the reasons for business success and business failure. And what they found is it all boils down to one thing. Businesses are successful because of high sales. Businesses fail because of low sales. And everything else is commentary. Everything else leads up or leads away. And so what do successful businesses do from IBM all the way down is they focus on sales all day long. Right. What do most small business people do? They play with their internet, mm-hmm. their phones, and their text messages all day long. You know, the average, the average small business owner spends 11% of their time in actual sales and marketing, and the other 89% of their time doing stuff that does not contribute any revenues to the business. And That's then they so wonder true. why they're struggling all the time. Yeah. Well, the answer is, go out and talk to customers all day long. What? I don't Real want to do that. <laughs> I'm too busy making the widget uh, that I don't have time yeah. to go focus on my sales. Yeah, and I'm too busy sending an email. <laughs> we, we, we say that we say social networking is social not working. It's so true. It really is. Yeah, and and that, that seems like a no-brainer, Brian, but it's, yep. but it's do it. I guess that's the thing is these are, these are thought patterns that I guess we could eventually create these new neural pathways to. But I've yeah. still got to go do it, don't I? Yep. I, I, one of my clients started with two guys on a kitchen table with an idea. And they'd all been fired from a company, and, but they still had the customers because they'd sold the company in business services. So they said, what are we going to do? And they said, well, let's start a new company selling the same services and go back to the customers that we had sold to and have them come to our new company. And so they got around the kitchen table, and they saw how we do well, We'll all go out and call on them. And they did. Today it's got a $4 billion business with 4,000 employees nationwide. It flies around in a private jet. And I asked him what the secret of his success is, calling on customers. Oh, man. <laughs> Jeez, yeah. That's so deep. It, it seems like, anyway, yeah. that's one chapter. Right. That's one chapter. But we talk that many, we find it that one kind, small twist in your thinking can totally transform your life. One of my favorite chapters is called Goal-Oriented Thinking versus Reaction-Oriented Thinking. Is people who are goal-oriented, who are very clear about what they want to accomplish and they have plans to achieve it and they work on them every day, automatically accomplish ten times as much as people without goals. Hmm. And when they did, did this recent study on rich people, they say 85% of rich people have one big goal that they work on every day. Only 3% of poor people have a big goal and they don't work on it all the time. So yeah. you just have to decide. Do I want to be a rich person or a poor person? Well, if you want to be a rich person, no guarantee you're going to become wealthy, but at least you're going to make a lot more money than if you do the things that poor people do. Right. And the world is full of people doing the things that poor people do, and they're wondering why they're not getting better financial results. Right. And, and again, our minds spread too, uh, spread too far out. We're not, we're not focused on the one thing, and we're not selling, and we don't have the entrepreneurial vision, and we don't think long-term. I mean, it's... It's uh, it, it kind of then implodes on itself, doesn't it? It seems like some of these would kind of strengthen the next chapter that you that you talk about. All of these can kind of work together. Everything everything works together, and the one wonderful thing is, if you think clearly about who you are and what you want, then you get better results. When you get better results, you feel happy, you feel powerful, you feel in control of your life, you have high self esteem, you feel like a winner, and so you are internally motivated 
to do more good things. Yeah. To develop greater clarity about your goals, to start earlier, to work harder, to finish your tasks. You know, I've, I'm the best-selling author in the world on time management as well. And, and I came to a conclusion after 30 years that all business success comes from task completion. And I, yeah. thought, I, I sat down and said, geez, I said, geez, that's a neat thought. Task completion. It's not task working on. It's not task thinking about. It's task completion. It's people who are successful are people who complete their tasks. Well, if that's the case, and everybody automatically recognizes that that's true, by the way, your whole reputation in business is determined by whether or not you're t- you complete tasks. If you do, you're highly respected and esteemed and well-paid, and if you don't, you're not. So then if that's the case, then what you have to do is say, all right, then the more important the task is that I complete, the more successful I will be. Oh, wow, this is deep. Hmm. So you organize <laughs> your day each day, and you say, of all the things I could do today, what is the most important task that I could start and finish? And then you start on that task, and you work only on that task until it's done, and you don't do anything else. We say, don't check your email in the morning. Don't come to work and turn on your email. Leave it off until you finish your first and most important task. That simple strategy, which is a thinking strategy and then a discipline strategy, will transform your life. That's great. Great advice. Uh, and, and we're learning, really, I, at, the, at the feet, I guess, of a master. Brian Tracy's been doing this for 30-plus years, influencing millions and millions of lives. He's got a new book out, Get Smart. We'll take a break, come back, and continue this discussion with Brian. Find out some more solutions, some more tools. What are the keys to think and act like uh, the successful, most successful, highest-paid people in the world? They just think differently. And uh, wouldn't it be great to incorporate some of those thoughts into your life? We'll take a break. Stick with us, folks. More with Brian after the break. to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, honored today to have a wonderful guest um, joining us. Brian Tracy is his name. Honestly, 30 years plus in the field of economics and history. He's been studying all of this business, philosophy, psychology, 70 books he's written. Uh, many, many, many of them top-selling books. He has more than 300 audio and video learning programs and uh, including, you know, a best-selling psychology of achievement, which has been translated into more than 28 languages. Uh, Brian um, also was the chief operating officer of a $265 million development company, and he also has founded his own company, Brian Tracy International. Brian, welcome back to the show, my friend. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Good to have you. And this new book that is out, um, it's it sounds like... I mean, A, you're obviously passionate about it, but you're basically just teaching us more about how to get our brain uh, to create some new neural pathways, some new habits, and you're taking the ideas from, like, the most successful people or highest paid people. But the idea – so let's say somebody runs a charity and they're not into making money, but but every one of these principles would make their charity just as valuable and productive. Now, I, I do a lot of work with charities on their boards and strategic planning. And a charity is not a nonprofit. Right. A charity has to earn a profit, which is an, 
uh, revenues in excess of expenditures in order to survive. So people say, well, we're a nonprofit. We're not into profits. You, of course you are. Yeah, to survive you, you are. distribute them to shareholders. That's right. And so, so, so you have to offer much greater value than your costs, or you go out of business. And I've worked with charities who have gone out of business because they had this sort of elevated idea that I'm, I'm saintly, I'm good, mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a fine person, I don't dirty my hands with this, this money thing. Of course you do. Right. The, the heads of most charities that I work with spent almost all of their time fundraising, going around and asking people, please give me money. Yeah. And in business, you know, the, 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 I, I say to my, my audiences, I say, the business of business is asking people for their money, saying, please give me your money. And then they, they ask you, why? And you have to give them a good reason. So you have to say, give me your money because. And if your, money, if your reason is good, well, then they'll give you the money. If your reason is not good, then they'll say, no, let me think about it. I'm not interested. But that's all business people do is ask people to give that's me right. your money. And that's what, that's what nonprofits do. That's right. And the critical thing is the reason. So a really good, a good, really good business gives a really good reason so that the person they're asking for says, I want that. I want that product. I like that. That sounds good. I will mo- I'd be more than willing to give you my money for that product. So that's the entire essence of modern business. And, and if you can do that consistently, repetitively, in, as some of your chapters, in a very goal-oriented way, asking for it, looking for, out for the long term, uh, I guess, enter- or recreating your products, um, this can go on forever. Yeah, so like we have two, two chapters. One is called Entrepreneurial Thinking versus Corporate Thinking, you know, bureaucratic thinking. And the other is Rich Thinking versus Poor Thinking. Now, in, in both cases, what does the entrepreneur do? The entrepreneur looks for an opportunity to serve customers with a product or service better than anybody else is currently doing at a, at a reasonable cost. Rich people are always looking for the same thing, is they're looking, how can I serve more people? How, how can I combine my resources to create a product? Look at Richard Branson. You know, he, started, uh, eight, he started 85 businesses, three of which didn't work. 82 <laughs> worked. And he starts airlines, and he starts record stores, and he starts book labels, and he starts uh, all kinds of different businesses. I, I was in South Africa recently, and they have, they've got what is called Virgin Health Clubs. Hmm. And they are the elite health clubs with gyms and pools and everything else, and they're all over the country. Virgin Health Clubs. It was just a, a Branson idea. So what does he do? He looks at the market. He says, where is there an opportunity to serve people better, more efficiently, maybe most co- more cost-effective than they are being served today? Hmm. And if you look at your world like that, is how can I serve more people better? It that's, really That's what it's about. It's service to others. Yes. It's the key to wealth. It's the key to, it's the key to successful business. I, 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 I've often thought of, of writing an article or a book called ER, and ER is basically says, well, it's the key to success in business. Well, what does ER stand for? So, well, if you want to sell uh, to a prospect, you have to make them happy, okay? That's yeah. the key to business success is, is customer satisfaction, happy customers. But then your competitors come along, and they want your uh, customer as well. So how do they get their customer? They make them happier. Hmm. And so how do you make your customers happier than your competitors? Well, you have to do it faster, better, cheaper, <laughs> yeah. more convenient. Yeah. In other words, ER is the key to success in business. You have to, you have to dominate the er. <laughs> and, and you think of it like that, and it's really quite funny. That really is, but it's true, huh? 
Yeah, it's absolutely true. Hey, Customers as, are very selfish. As we, to, uh, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Well, they go to anybody who will treat, who will take care of them better than someone else. Yeah, is um, Brian? You've in business. You, you've been so successful, but you've also seen so many people. Um, we've only got two or three more minutes with you. What would you say? And, and you, you also, it could be from the book. But what what are we missing? Like, what would you say is one of the most important things? overall that we that we just need to do and get and understand about about business and people the most the most extensive research that's been done 50 years plus nobel prize winning research focuses on two things one is called long term thinking and the other is called slow thinking and that's versus short term thinking which is now 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 immediate gratification or fast thinking which is giving no thought just making decisions quickly. So you combine the two, and what forces you to be a long-term thinker and think slowly is goals. Sitting down with a piece of paper and writing down your goals and being very clear about what you want and when you want it, and then making a plan to achieve it. Be clear about your plan. Be clear about the additional skills that you'll need because every new goal requires new skills or improved skills. And then the most important things you can do each day to achieve your most important goals. This requires thoughtfulness. It requires long-term thinking, slow thinking. It requires informed thinking. It requires focused thinking. It requires clarity, concentration. The wonderful thing about it is it really helps your mind. It's like t- sending your mind to a, um, an aerobics class. It makes your brain so much better and smarter, and you accomplish 10 times as much as the average person. Mm. So true, though, isn't it? Basic, basic principles. Well, Brian Tracy, I know you got to go. You got other interviews as you're as you're launching this new book today. Thank you so much for your time and your insight. Hey, Matt. Nice to talk to you. You have a great day. You bet. Take care. Again, Brian Tracy. Go go look up his website, uh, BrianTracy.com, and uh, so many books, so many resources. Again, it's isn't it interesting how you can take it back to some very basic skills, some very basic habits and uh, that that make successful people successful. Their orientation, their 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 focus, their process, um the creation of systems, slowing down their thinking a little bit, having a plan, learning. Man, just focusing on sales. I mean, isn't that crazy? Yeah, I, I we really want to be rich. We want our company to take off. But only 11% of your focus is on sales? But that's the majority of your work? Crazy. Uh, we'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion on the other side. Do a little coach's corner for you. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome to the Coach's Corner. Uh, in this uh, segment, we like to give you some, some real-life coaching, some ideas, some tools. We just had a wonderful study presented to us by Andrew Steptoe about uh, as we're aging our happiness levels, right? And so as part of that, I wanted to talk a little bit more about um, retirement. A lot of couples end up retiring and it's, you know, it should be a great, a wonderful, blessed event because now all of a sudden 
you've got nothing but time to just you and your honey to just live together and be happy. The reality is many people haven't even talked to their spouse for years. And so now we're supposed to make this work. And one person may have been the kind of stay at home person and the other was out in the workforce. And now you're going to come home and inject yourself into their life at home. So four conversations that we need to worry about as we are uh, thinking about retirement. And so if you're an empty nester, it's an interesting statistic about your your divorce rate at empty nesting stage. Apparently, the divorce rate goes up about 16 percent when you and your honey are left alone with no more kids in uh, in the uh, in the nest. Is that crazy? 16 percent increase simply because. Now we've got to work at it, as Andrew was saying earlier. The hard thing about a relationship is they demand work, and many of us haven't been doing the work. And so here's four conversations that if you're thinking of retiring, I would sit down and I would have each of these conversations. Don't think you're going to retire, then have the conversation. I'd first have the conversation. The first conversation is what I call the resources conversation. That is about how you are going to live on a fixed wage. With one or both of you now retiring, it only makes sense that you're not going to be able to live at the same financial level that you were before. In this conversation, you should discuss the financial realities of your world. You should evaluate a bunch of different things, your health care benefits, where they're going to come from, how they're going to change, your Medicare, your Medicaid, Social Security, rainy day funds, insurance costs, your cost of living. Is it time to, sh- to get a smaller home? Are we going to stay in the home? Is the home paid off? What are going to be the future changes that need to be made in the home? Are we going to uh, need to put a new roof on the home? What's going on? But start discussing this. I'd get very clear about what your actual inflow of money will look like, and I would do that before you walk away from another company. You know what? You'd, you'd think like, well, no, duh, Matt. But that doesn't always happen. Do you know the inflow of what your money's going to look like? What will your outgo look like? Are you going to have a rainy day fund to take care of that house? Is it time to get the house on the market before we need to be making some of these major changes um, and, and the major you know, breakdowns of certain uh, equipment in the home? What does our budget need to be in order to balance the inflow and the outgo? You've got to figure that out. Part of the uh, resources conversation is what are the needs and the wants that we both have? Does one of us really want to travel a lot? You know, Travel may cost. Do we have a budget for that? Are we going to buy a motorhome and become members of the Good Sam Club and travel all over the country? Is that going to be an expense we need to pay attention to? What are some extra activities that are going to come up now that we have more time? Should we just continue working part-time? You know, information, very basic conversation. Think about it. Have you had the conversation? By the way, that's a great conversation to have whether you're retiring or not, by the way. Every one of these are. Um, Another second conversation I'd be focusing on after you've had the resources conversation, have the time conversation. You know, many times one of the biggest surprises is how much time you are actually going to be spending with each other. And a lot of people, when you first fell in love, that was great. Oh, my word. It's so exciting because we have nothing but time together. But you've kind of grown your own identity. You've grown your own hobbies. You've grown your own needs. You need to go figure out. How much each other is going to need? How much space will your partner need every day? You got to figure out what your time is versus their time versus our time. I would not retire and assume that we're just going to be together. 
I, I promise you, I've seen many a couple, once they're together, it, it goes south. Because now we, now what? Now you're going to look at what I'm doing and you're going to start judging how I spend my morning? You're going to watch those shows all morning? Get out of your chair. When are you going to go work on the yard? You've got nothing but time. So your schedules are going to matter. What time do we go to bed now? You know, what time do we wake up? How much time alone do you need every day? What does a tentative schedule look like? I'd break down your schedule. What are the times that you might call sacred every day, inviolable, that you know your partner should not be messing with? There might be certain shows you love. There might be certain lunches you love to go have that your partner is not to mess with. So the time conversation. Another conversation I love is the distribution of work conversation. This, by the way, is one that you should have with your spouse today, regardless of whether you're retiring or not. We tend to not serve equally in the home. The research shows that while we are dating, women do a little bit more work than the men do. If they're, if they're cohabitating, for example, women do a little bit more work than the men do in the home. The interesting, sad research is once they marry, men do significantly less home work in the home than the woman does. Married people do not distribute the work evenly, especially if one partner works outside of the home. So you need to have a conversation. Are we going to, how are we going to distribute the work every day? You got to have clarity on this one because a lack of clarity is going to cause nothing more than pain. So how are we going to distribute the chores? We're going to discuss who's going to do what, who's inside the home, what are we going to do inside the home? Are we both going to work outside of the home? What happens with the automobiles, the family, the grandkids? You know, who's going to make dinner every night? Who cleans up the dinner? I would very specifically go through each part of this. And if we like doing it together, you know, you know, multiple hands make lighter work, right? So here's some questions you could ask. Who's responsible for what chores around the home? Who makes the dinner? Who cleans up? How many times should we eat out versus eating in? What is one activity that uh, you both have been doing for years that you want to quit? Talk about it. Who puts together the family parties? Whose responsibility should that be? Who sends out the birthday cards? Who pays the bills? Who does the grocery shopping? All different ideas about how we're going to distribute the work. So, so far, look at that. We've talked about how we're going to have our resources. Do we have enough? What will it look like? The time conversation, the distribution of work conversation, and last and certainly not least, probably the most important conversation you can have if you're about to retire. And Andrew Steptoe brought it up. It's the legacy conversation. The legacy conversation for me, critical. Okay, because this is going to now shore up that you're going to say, great, let's say we each have 15 to 20 more years in us as we're retiring. What do we want our legacy to be as a couple, as an individual as well? What are your goals? What are your dreams? What is your new purpose? It's an exciting stage. Where do you want to invest this time? What do you want people to say at your funeral? What do you want that legacy to be? This is where we can really tie it up. This is where our passion should come out, as Andrew Steptoe was talking about. Um, this is where we start discussing what do we want our children to say about us, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. You've got the time now. Now we need to maybe strengthen some relationships. We need to start you know, working on ourselves emotionally and spiritually and mentally, financially, physically. All of these are, are resources we can be using But what motivates you? That's a great question at this stage. Share it. What do you want people to say about you at your funeral? Talk about it. 
What do you consider your most important responsibilities and relationships at this stage? Boy, what happens if one of your kids has a real blow up with their spouse or passes away, heaven forbid, and you get to raise the grandchildren? Is that your legacy? I'd throw these crazy questions in there because if you talk to people long enough, that's what all these couples are going through. Grandparents are picking up more today than they ever have. What is the purpose of your life? If I put a microphone in front of you and just said, hey, what is the purpose of your life? What would you say? What would your spouse say? Do you think you'd be on the same page? Because if we don't know the answer to that question, what are we doing? How do I know how to manage every one of my days if I don't know what the purpose of my life is? What is the lesson, one or two, each, maybe one of each of you, that you want to teach to the rest of the world? What do your grandkids need to know that only you could teach as a grandparent? And what lessons do you still need to learn? Basic questions about your legacy. By the way, these are just conversations, right? But my belief is it's a conversation that changes the game. That's why we do this show because we want to change the conversations. So as we work on our resources, as we work on our time conversations, our distribution of work in the in the marriage and our legacy, every one of these conversations makes us stronger. And please listen to what your partner is saying. We've got to figure out what they want because one of the rules is uh, mutual benefit has to be there. We both have to be benefiting if we want a long-term relationship, right? So if this is about you controlling the resources and not letting your partner have any access to money, you're going to have problems. Or if the time, if you keep encroaching on their time, or if you're not sharing the workload evenly, you're going to have issues. And we don't want issues because it's not going to make us happy. And according to our earlier research, we need to be happy in order to have longevity. Folks, that's the Coach's Corner. I highly challenge you, suggest that you get out there, have the conversation. And you know what? You don't need to wait for retirement. Legacy, distribution, time, resources. Four conversations, one relationship. That's the Coach's Corner. Thanks for joining us, my friends. We're going to take a break. You're listening to us on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Have we been telling stories that we really haven't even thought about? But we use these phrases like, I'm not very good at that. Yeah, I don't do that. I'm not a math person. We might quickly dismiss something we do by saying, ah, it's just the way I am. Yeah, I, you know, I'm not, I don't like to hold the grandbabies. I, I, I want them. I'm a, I'm a grandpa that'll play with them when they're older. Well, let go of that story and pick up your grandbaby. <laughs> Get rid of the story. You don't have to be pegged by something you thought you were 30 years ago. It's not like somebody's going to say, Grandpa, do this math. So you you don't have to be bad at math anymore. You've got a brain. You can still add. Anyway, it's simple to just sit there and have a trite phrase that we use all of the time. But many of these phrases, they're not going to help you. They beat you up. They... They actually take away something. They could take away something like time with your kids or your grandkids. Yeah, I don't have time for that. 
Yeah, hobbies, you know, I don't golf because it's a waste of time. Now, you don't have to go golf, but that's also a story because it could be really time well spent. Exercising, hanging out with friends, opening your mind up, meditating, wrapping your golf club around a tree, stuff like that. Another thing we need to let go of is the need to keep score. Let's just get very clear, folks. Life isn't fair. So if it's not fair, then there's probably no value in keeping score. (laughs) People are going to step on you. They're going to make mistakes. Someone's going to pull in front of you, and it is going to slow you down ten hundredths of a second. Yeah, it happens. Doesn't mean you need to chase them down and pull in front of them. The reason why it's not useful to keep score is because much of life is intangible anyway. The greatest benefits in life are intangible. They're not even... You can't mark it. You can't compare it. The joy you feel being with a grandchild, the joy you feel watching your child have a home run or hit a home run in a game, man, that's incredible. And why are we keeping score? It's not fair. At some point, people are going to step on your toes. They're going to do stupid stuff. This isn't a race. This is called life. So if you feel a need to keep score constantly, then guess what? You're going to pay for it. There's going to be problems for you. Another thing we need to let go of are what I call the overs and the unders. Every one of us tends to take extremes in our lives. We either go overboard or under, right? So we play way too hard and excessive in what we do. We play to kill for keeps. We play to dominate. And some of us just don't play. Think about your life. Where are you overboard? Well, I I collect figurines. I have 12,000 of them. Okay, it's a little over. Maybe you're a little overboard on that. Uh, You don't have to be a fanatic to believe in God. You don't have to go overboard or under. Yeah, I don't even go to church. You can actually go to church and just be there. Be there your way. Yeah, but then they'll ask me to pray, and then i got to pray. Well, you could say no. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Overs and unders, we all do it. And sometimes it's over, you know, we're overconfident, uh, and some of us are really underconfident. We lack the confidence we need. Are there certain things that take you to an extreme? Are you doing any activity excessively? Do Do you overschedule your life? Do you overcommit to everything? Are you overly exhausted? Or do you, you know, have plenty of energy because you don't ever say yes to anything and you don't ever step out of your comfort zone? We might want to look at that and let go of it. You might want to let go of what's not working. Sometimes in life there's just time to let go of stuff that just isn't working. It's it's how many times do you keep trying to do something over and over and it's just not working? We keep trying it. That could, I mean, I see it a lot with my clients where they just keep trying and trying and trying to do, to have a conversation, even though it's not working. Well, what are we supposed to do? Just not talk? Well, no, but go learn how to make it work. Find another way to do this. There are different ways to try stuff. And with today's technology and today's day and age, if, if the way you keep trying to lose weight isn't working and it hasn't for 30 years, 
Maybe you've got to let go of that way of losing weight. Maybe it's not about watching your calories. Maybe it's not. Maybe there's another way to skin the cat. I don't know why we're skinning cats, but... Seems gotta, a little cruel to me. Yeah, to you don't skin, have to skin a skin cat, cat to lose weight. You don't. But find another way to do it. Just go find something you're passionate about. Well, I really love racquetball, but I, it doesn't help me with my calories. Well, okay, there's... But then go do more racquetball. You know, I don't know. Just we've got to find a different way of doing things that, especially after years of something not working. Another thing we might want to do is get rid of our need to accumulate stuff. Oh, it's just stuff we keep. I kept, and I have no idea why I did it. I kept every script basically for our radio show, every article I read. We, we accumulate about 20, 30 pages of information that we use for this show every day. And I would just staple them all together and put them in a file. I threw them out. Actually, I had, I had Kaylee throw them out. She, broke her, she about, darn near broke her back trying to lift, this, lift these papers. It's crazy. We accumulate stuff like it matters. But then when you look at people like Gandhi... You know, Buddha, Christ, these people were known for what they didn't have. They didn't try to get their identity from their stuff. Maybe we could just throw more stuff out, you know, recycle more, get rid of stuff, declutter. So I challenge you as springs are coming, let's declutter. Get in there and seriously, get rid of a third of your stuff. Well, but I might need it. Have you needed it the last 10 years? Well, no, but I might retire in 10 more years, and then I might need it. Believe me, by the time you retire in 10 years, you won't need it. You'll have an iPhone that does everything for you. Another thing we might let go of is just one bad habit. Think of one bad habit. You might have 50. Ben has 250. And growing. (laughs) And growing. Just get rid of one bad habit. Just one thing. What's one thing you can just figure out how to stop doing today? One thing. Let's just get it off our plate. Oh. One bad habit. Ben, what's your bad habit you're going to get rid of? Caring too much. No, brother. Caring too much? When did that start? That's my defect. That's my only defect. My only weakness. Yeah. Okay, never mind. Don't even worry about it. Never mind. I knew I shouldn't have asked him. Just one bad habit. What's your What's your worst habit? I care too much. So I'm going to let it go and turn into a horrible, evil person. That's one of the great lines. What's your worst, um, what would you say is your worst habit uh, as we're about to hire you for this job? My worst habit is I, I try too hard. I work endlessly. You're amazing. I know. You ought to hire me. Anyway, let go of just one bad habit. So there you have it, folks. A few ideas for you. Things we can let go of. Project elimination. Let go of stories that don't serve us. Let go of the need to keep score. Let go of the overs and the unders, the extremes that we take. Let go of what is not working. Let go of the need to accumulate stuff. And let go of one bad habit. 
even if that habit is you care too much. That's the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. We'll be back. More tools, more ideas to help you live longer, love stronger. Stick with us, folks. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is my favorite song to learn spelling. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. You know, some of the most difficult languages to learn include Chinese, Finnish, and Arabic. Although English isn't on the list, it's still no cakewalk to learn that language. Languages can become difficult to learn for grammatical reasons, because of colloquial terms and accents. The English Spelling Society, however, argues that it is, in fact, spelling that makes English a challenge to learn. And here might be one little hint why. We mentioned uh, this statistic earlier that um, there are 205 ways to spell 44 sounds, right? The words cat, kangaroo, chrome, and Q all start with the same sound. Eight and eight like you ate food, sound identical. It and item, same letters sound differently, don't they? Cough does not rhyme with enough, trough, trough, furlough, and bow. Same spelling. It might be a spelling problem, folks, so we decided to bring in the pros. Who better to teach us this than our guest today, Stephen Lindstead, chairman and honorary treasurer for the English Spelling Society. He joins us now live from UK to help us sort through the spelling mess. Stephen, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm glad to join you. Honored to have you. And um, a lot. it's an interesting idea because we don't necessarily think of learning the English language as really a spelling problem, but you're making the argument that it is. Yes. I mean, English is not a difficult language to learn in terms of its grammar or syntax or punctuation. It's a lot more regular than many other languages in the world. But English does have this particular uh, burden to bear, which is its very irregular spelling system. And it's probably the most irregular spelling system of all spelling systems based on the alphabetic principle. And the reason for that is uh, largely historical. But the reason why English stands out as being so irregular is that not merely can you not tell how to spell a word from hearing it pronounced, but you don't always know how to pronounce a a strange word from seeing it spelt out in Mm. writing. And that is a kind of double whammy, which uh, English uh, does not share with most other languages, even though some other languages are not all that regular, like French or Portuguese. But English really comes to the bottom of the list in terms of regularity. Is it, and you're saying it's, it's based on the history. Um, talk about the history of the English language. What, is that why there are so many different, um, different just sounds and, and ways to spell those sounds? Yes. I mean, it is a complex story. It's a complex history. Um, the, right at the base, you have um, Norman French. Um, dovetailed onto uh, Anglo-Saxon Old English and two different spelling conventions uh, all mixed up with no real rules for telling which rule applies. 
Then you get to the 15th century, by which time English has uh, established itself as the official language again, um, not written down with any degree of regularity by the clerks of the time. Then you get Caxton's printers, who are Dutch, who didn't understand English <laughs> very well. Then you add to that the great uh, vowel glide of the 16th century, where the sounds of a lot of vowels changed. Unfortunately, the spelling of them didn't. Oh, wow. And then finally you get the early lexicographers of the um, 17th and 18th centuries who were not really interested in the phonetic principle at all. Um, and Dr. Johnson uh, was very great in many other ways, almost delighted in creating different ways of spelling the same sound. Ugh. I don't like and him. it's not changed very much since the 18th century. Yeah. The English language has, but the spelling hasn't. Well, and so it really is, it sounds like, with all of these differences, it really is just the memorization of rules. Well, or not even a rule, most, really. It's just the memorization of a, a certain use. Yes. I mean, with most languages, um, and you, you said earlier on, before I joined you, that um, Finnish was an easily language to spell, although it's a difficult language to learn. Yes, it, it is a difficult language to learn. It's not an Indo-European language, but it does have a very phonetic uh, spelling system. So languages that may be quite difficult for an English-speaking person to learn uh, may be much easier to spell than English itself. Hmm. So really the language, the ability to kind of access the language is, is very much rooted and based in the ease of the spelling. Well, spelling is a factor. Um, as I said before, English is regular, quite regular in terms of its grammar and its punctuation. If you learn the rules of English grammar and uh, punctuation, you ought to be able to apply them. But you, you, there, there are rules uh, underlying English spelling. Uh, one of them is the doubling rule, for example, on the magic E. But the trouble is that English doesn't obey its spelling rules with <laughs> enormous frequency. So you have to learn when the rule applies and when the rule is not being applied. And so, in addition to learning the kind of phonic rules representation, you have to learn a great number of irregular words, and you just have to memorize them. Oh, wow. Is, um, when you think about it, I mean, I guess in European languages, uh, does English stand out? Is it different than Spanish? Like, I'm fluent in Spanish, and I feel, um, I feel like Spanish seemed to have fewer rules than the English language. Spanish, the, um, Spanish is a fairly easy language to learn. I don't speak Spanish very well, but it's, um, the, the rules of Spanish grammar are quite easy. And the thing about Spanish, it's a very uh, phonetic um, spelling. Uh, if you hear, if you see something written in Spanish, you almost automatically know how mm -hmm. to pronounce it. And quite often, if you hear the word pronounced, you've got a good idea how it's spelled. So Spanish um, is, um, has that advantage over English if it's highly regular spelling. In fact, Spanish, along with languages like Italian and, and Finnish, come at the high end of um, what we would call phonemicity hmm. in relationship to the spoken word. One of the things that we found in um, this article, How Spelling Keeps Kids from Learning, it was in The Atlantic, and it referenced yeah. uh, a book by Masha Bell, who's the vice chair okay. there. And w w one of the keys, I guess, to this is that um, she, she quoted – or is uh, – I don't know um, if Masha is a male or a female, but they quoted um, that they had analyzed in a study in your organization 7,000 of the most common English words and found that 60 percent of them had one or more predictably – unpredictably used letters. So 60 percent of our most common words have some deviation from the norm. 
you can argue about this uh, till kingdom come. I mean, exactly what is an irregularity and how frequently it comes. I mean, the, the, the estimates range. My estimate, which is a conservative one, is about 30 to 40 percent of mm. words in the English language have got some degree of irregularity or uh, unpredictability. Other, others would um, put it higher than that. The real question is, to what extent does this irregularity make it difficult for children and for students of English as a second language to, to learn the language? And how diffi what difficulties does it cause uh, for adults in, a in an age where, we, um, where literacy is very important? Hmm. And, and so um, it, it is, you do see that it, it impacts maybe to some degree the child's ability to learn it. Plus, uh, age, uh, I'm, I'm reading in the article, age may also be impacting it, where some of the skills to sort through these deviations and these, these differences in the English spelling um, might not even be uh, available to the, to the child until they're, until they're older, until they're in middle school. Yeah. Um... Clearly, I mean, there are all kinds of factors in the level of literacy in, in a country. There is the amount spent on education, the, um, the organization of education, and the teaching methods. But I think one of the factors which has been rather poo-pooed up to now is the um, influence of irregular spelling in a particular language. And there is now some concrete proof that English, the regularity of English spelling does have a, a quantifiable effect. There was a study done in 2001, 2002, by Seymour um, in the United Kingdom, and that showed that English-speaking children, compared with those in 12 European countries, took up to two years longer to master basic spelling compared with, with the other kids. So um, that does represent an awful lot of teaching time and um, an awful lot of extra effort for kids. In fact, a member of my society in the States who joined recently said that what he found so frustrating about English spelling was it sucked the joy out of early education for children. <laughs> it's so true. That's true, though. I, I, totally, I totally feel that. And, um, but it's cause, – yeah, because it's so, it's so much to learn. Um, let's do this. I want to take a break and come back because I know that you have some profound insight into how we should be teaching spelling and and how we might even reform some of our spelling um, issues. And again, too, technology seems to be changing it. I have a son that writes us letters. He lives away. And uh, man, thank heavens for spell check because it's correcting <laughs> everything he does. So we'll have more with Stephen, uh, Stephen Linstead, and we're going to continue this discussion about English and uh, spelling with uh, Stephen Linstead from the English Spelling Society. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, learn and understand better how to learn. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We are on the phone uh, with Stephen Lindstead. He is the chairman and honorary treasurer for the English Spelling Society. You can look up their website, spellingsociety.org, and a great resource, really, for to, you know to help us understand better what's going on. 
English spelling is difficult. It's hard. It may be putting some undue pressure on your kids. And uh, we wanted to talk to an expert about what that means and uh, and what we do about it. So we welcome you back, Stephen Lindstedt, to The Matt Townsend Show. Hi. Great to have you. Talk to us about, um, we know it's difficult and the history is interesting, too, uh, from the Norman, French, and Old English to the Dutch printers that maybe didn't even understand what they were changing to the vowel glide changes. The English language has been, uh, it's kind of gone through the ringer. And um, talk about what you see maybe we could do to teach it more effectively or and uh, any ref- reformation or what, what we would do to make it easier to learn. I, as I said uh, before the break, um, I'm not pretending that changing English spelling would be a magic bullet that uh, led us to instant literacy. I mean, we agonize about uh, adult illiteracy in the United States and in the United Kingdom, and it is really a serious problem because we know how much the lack of functional literacy uh, is associated with social deprivation and crime. So illiteracy really is, is a, a major problem. The amount spent on education, educational methods, uh, obviously are important. I would say that you know, if you're a parent with a kid who is um, having problems with spelling, um, don't assume he's thick, he or she mm. is thick. Um, there is a genuine problem there. Um, the, certainly in Britain, and I think in the United States, synthetic phonics is regarded as the latest and most effective way of coping with teaching kids spelling. Um, I wouldn't wish to denigrate it in any way, but there have been a number of sources, including our Ofsted um, inspectorate in, in the United Kingdom, which is, don't rely on uh, uh, synthetic phonics alone. It's not necessarily a panacea for everything. Different kids um, learn to spell in different ways. So I think um, all children you know, need parental encouragement, but they need to uh, learn to spell in the way that's best for them, and it may not always be the method that they're being taught at school. Mm. Um, spelling, changing the spelling, well, that's been our long-term objective um, in the Spelling Society. We were, we were founded in 1908, and to be quite honest, we haven't got very far with it since then. Um, changing spelling is always problematical in any language. Uh, it is always resisted. And with English, we don't have the equivalent of the Académie Française or the Real Academia to lay down rules and changes and things like that. Um, my society is, has a plan, a project, for trying to go about it in a slightly different manner. And we're hoping to try and raise funds for an International English Spelling Congress, uh, which would uh, take in delegates basically from all over the English-speaking world uh, there would be a great deal of market research as to what was or was not acceptable. And the, they would appoint a commission which drew up a short list of alternative spelling systems. And the reconvened Congress would then choose between them. Uh, we're not suggesting any kind of top-down uh, imposition from governments. Governments aren't interested. There are no votes in spelling change. Right. But hopefully if one had an alternative system which was widely acceptable upon those who are at least benevolently neutral on, on spelling reform, then the hope is that gradually this would run alongside traditional spelling and might eventually take over from it. That's the kind of vision thing mm. that we have at the moment. Well, and, and um, I guess kind of while you're working on that side of it and you know pushing, I guess, even from the more educational side and the governmental side, um, mm. it, parents, like you were saying, we can go – we can be a bigger part of 
helping our children figure out how they learn, what's the best way that they like to learn. I love on your website at spellingsociety.org, you have an area for the kids called the Kids' Corner and a guide to English speaking. There's so many different tools and rules that are available and people can just come and, and learn. Yeah. Well, that's what we, what we try to do. Every child is different, and um, it, it isn't uh, true that um, all one size fits all. Um, I think all, unless your child is absolutely brilliant at memorizing irregular words, they're going to have some difficulty with, with spelling. And what the, the parent needs to do is to try and find what helps most. Yeah. But I would say to all parents, do open your mind just a little bit. Uh, and just think whether it may not be the case that our irregular spelling is having some effect mm-hmm. on the problems your your kid has. No, I and I. It's interesting. I didn't. My mind wasn't open to that, and it is now. When I just look at your research on your site, it's unbelievable. And like you said, don't think your child is thick. Don't think they're they're stupid that they can't get this. Absolutely it's they're not. just different. They 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 yeah. access it differently. Yeah, the one story about the the the. Um, the perils of try- governments trying to impose spelling change, of course, is dear old Teddy Roosevelt, who tried to change uh, American spellings at the beginning of the 20th century and was brought up to a very abrupt halt by the House of Representatives. I think that's a, a lesson in how not to go about uh, yeah. spelling reform. Yeah, that's why it's probably like you're saying, better not to make it political, huh? Just just make it uh, show the success of it. That's how I think yep. this would fly, if I could just see how I could help my children. <laughs> Well, we appreciate well, we'll you. We get our Congress off the ground. Oh, yeah. I mean, you've happens. seen what's going on in our election here. Can you imagine if we got into a spelling debate in the middle of it? Well, I try to keep politicians out of spelling reform because they either don't, are not interested or they take delight in saying how uh, appalling any prospect of spelling ah, reform is. Sure. Yeah. And that, that, that doesn't... Uh, I'm not not aimed at any candidate or any party. Right, right. Or averse to spelling reform. But if it could help one or two children, you know, or one or two percent to learn better, and and if we just looked at it more um, directly, I think I think we will see that there's a lot of benefit by by understanding it. Uh, Stephen mindedness is what I'm asking. Yeah, Stephen Lindstedt's his name. Go check out the website spellingsociety.org. Wonderful uh, site for parents. Go, you can go under. Uh, the section under spelling or for kids. There's a kids' corner, and you could learn the guide to English spelling. Lots of wonderful rules and tools for you there. We'll take a break, folks. Come back and continue this uh, this second hour of the Matt Townsend Show. We're also going to get into the history of St. Patty's Day. Where did it all come from? Our own producer, Leanna Tan, has put together a, a little piece for us to understand its history. Lots of fun. Still ahead, folks. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I love talking to people that are at the top of their field, right? The top of their game. I mean, some people are sitting there like, well, I don't like people that try to make it sound that simple. And... um. You know, you don't have to go chasing money. You don't have to go be in love with money and 
But the reality is there are people, and if you've ever been around somebody, I just sat down with somebody yesterday that is running a huge company, multi-billion dollar company. And he, with thousands of employees and tens of thousands of employees, and it's it's interesting how organized he really is and how it all comes down to very basic principles in his mind, in his in his head. It really is about principles. And I think that's all Brian was teaching us is there's just certain principles that are going to lead to success. You can argue against them if you want, but it's hard to argue that companies that focus on sales make more sales. I mean, if, if all of a sudden the average... Uh, corporation is spending 25% of their workforce, 30% of their money on creating and generating cells, and uh, you know, a little homegrown business is spending 10% on cells, wouldn't it make sense that the corporation's going to make more money? Right? That's not brain surgery. And yet, as a small business owner, it's hard to focus on sales if you don't love sales. I'd rather create content any day, but that's useless if no one's going to go sell the content. So if you want a company to succeed, you really need to do what works. How about just long-term thinking versus short-term thinking? Have you been so busy just living your life day in and day out that you didn't plan ahead for something down the road? You ever had a trip that you knew you were going to take and you know, six months from now, and then you waited till three weeks before to get your passport? Oh, just long-term thinking, you know, it helps. It's not perfect, but it, it can certainly help. So anyway, it's uh, it's just some basic information. Um, and uh, But also, I think if you just look at, uh, like, Brian Tracy's success rate— it's pretty good. Pretty good. If you're selling millions and millions of books a year, you're doing you're doing okay. Doesn't make doesn't mean it's all perfect and great, but he's living his principles. He is creating sales. He is an entrepreneur. He is looking long term. If you're trying to grow a business, you probably ought to grow some of those principles as well. But there might be more. Uh, other things we can be doing. Let me give you a few more that that will definitely impact your ability to to live better. We might actually need to go back into our lives and eliminate some things, right? Get rid of certain things. There's a listen to this story of a 90-year-old woman um, from Michigan decided to turn her cancer diagnosis into an excuse to travel across the United States. The woman named Norma is accompanied by her son, Tim, daughter-in-law, Ramey, and their poodle, Ringo. And they are out documenting their adventures via Facebook page, Driving Miss Norma. (laughs) Norma learned of her cancer within two weeks of her husband's death and told her son prior to the diagnosis that she had no interest in treatment. Her son and his wife then explained to the doctor they would be driving her around the country in her RV, and ultimately receiving his blessing. As doctors, we see what cancer treatment looks like every day, he said. 
ICU, nursing homes, awful side effects, and honestly, there is no guarantee she will survive the initial surgery to remove the mass. You're doing exactly what I want to do in this situation. Have a fantastic trip, the doctor said. In August, the family upgraded their motor home to a larger 36-foot model and began their trip by traveling to Mount Rushmore in South Dakota before continuing through the country, visiting other landmarks, historical sites such as Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Ramey uh, told ABC News that in addition to seeing the sites and gaining more than 100,000 likes on her Facebook page, Norma's health seems to be improving. How cool is that? She's getting better, maybe, or at least feeling better. She's receiving the benefits of being different, doing something different. Notice she set a goal. She's figured out how the goal is going to work. What a great way. If, if, you gotta, if you got cancer and you got to deal with cancer, it sure sounds like a better way to do it. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. It's just technology. But I'm telling you, I have a feeling we are getting lulled to sleep. And we are sleeping through our own lives. The minute you have a free second, do you reach for your cell phone? Do you have to go check Facebook to see what your million friends are doing or have done? What is it doing to us? It's killing us. And again, it's just tech. I get it. It's just technology. However, this is still your life. And if you're going to spend the rest of your life just caught up in technology, what lesson are we sending our children? So before we sit there and try to fix our children's use of technology, make sure you take a really strong inventory of yourself. Are you addicted? If you lost your phone, would your life completely fall apart? Well, yeah. Who would I, who would I like? Well, I don't know. But that's pretty pitiful because if you lost your phone, you're still you, right? Well, yeah, but I don't know my friends' names or their numbers. Well, that's weird. Maybe they're not your real friends then. Come on. Come on. Hey, uh, you know, tech is being used everywhere. If you, I don't know if you heard this story about uh, cops. Um, North, Northeast Ohio police are hoping to figure out who left a bag of methamphetamine in a hotel, I guess. And they, they, they feel horrible. The police department feels horrible for the owner's loss and wants to help. The tongue-in-cheek message was posted Tuesday to the Macedonia Police Facebook page and asked the owners of the drugs to call or stop by to claim them so officers can, in their words, make your day. It's a trap! A photograph shows a baggie containing what detectives say is about a gram of high-grade crystal methamphetamine, worth as much as 160 bucks. The detective at the department, about 20 miles southeast of Cleveland, says there were numerous empty bags in the hotel trash can. Police haven't identified who rented the room using a, uh, a gift card. Um, so if you're out there and you've lost $160 worth of high-grade crystal meth, about a gram's worth, give them a call. Or give us a call. No, don't give us a call. (laughs) No, 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 no. Don't give us a call. Ben, give the Macedonia Police Department a call. They're worried. They're worried about you. See, you can use tech to 
help people who have lost things. It's that simple. By the way, I used tech to find my my iPad once when I dropped it off my car, actually. I left it on my hood of my car. I drove away. I, I've only heard of, like, women doing that with their purses. Okay. Well, you need to get out more. Ben, because I'm not a woman and it wasn't in a purse. It was on my roof of my car and I drove away. And I called my son and I'm like, have you seen my iPad? And he's like, no. And I said, it's missing. I lost it. And I was terrified. And he's like, well, Dad, have you looked it up? Have you have you tried to the find my iPhone app and the find my iPad app? And I'm like, no, what are you talking about? And about a minute later, he had found my iPad. He said, Dad, I found your iPad. It's traveling south on I-15. <gasps> what? Anyway, we te- we contacted the iPad, told him to call this number. We know where you are. And within about an hour, hour and a half, we had our iPad back. Pretty cool. Tech is good. Tech making me happy. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back. More fun, more tools to help you live longer and stronger. Stick with us.